Thank you for joining us for Talking Sleep, a podcast of the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Seema Kosla, Medical Director of the North Dakota Center for Sleep in Fargo. So we had an episode almost two years ago that's been our most popular episode at over 4,000 downloads. It was about the diagnosis and treatment of central sleep apnea. So today we would like to revisit central sleep apnea, especially because it can be a confusing and complex disorder. To help walk us through it is Dr. Safwan Batter. Dr. Batter is a past president of the AASM and currently serves as professor and chair of internal medicine at the Wayne State University School of Medicine and is staff physician at the VA Medical Center in Detroit. Dr. Batter currently serves on the Board of Directors for the American Board of Internal Medicine. Thanks for joining us today, Dr. Batter. Glad to be here. So you published a review on central sleep apnea a few years ago, and I'm hoping you can take us through it and help us to understand when it is a problem versus an innocent bystander. So what is the relationship between central sleep apnea and obstructive sleep apnea? Great question. Well, we tend to think of central sleep apnea as a footnote or a, or a small separate disorder. Um, and I would posit that central sleep apnea should be viewed as a headline. Huh. And that the relationship between central and obstructive sleep apnea is very tight. From a pathophysiologic standpoint, these two conditions are very much intertwined. Now, I'm going to take you back a little bit in history, but go into the early 80s. And there was the pioneering work of Onyal and Lopata at the University of Illinois in Chicago, where they actually looked at periodic breathing. And they noted that upper airway obstruction happened at the nadir of ventilatory drive. So as you decrease drive, and again, central apnea is the extreme form of decreased drive, the airway obstructs. Several groups of investigators tried to induce that experimentally by inducing periodic breathing with hypoxia, which is what happened to us if we go to high altitude, individuals who have unfavorable upper airway anatomy, developed upper airway obstruction at the nadir of drive. So clearly it says that as you decrease drive, the upper airway tends to narrow. We've done some experimental work on this when we gave hypercapnia or hypoxia, and upper airway patency improved. But then years later, we, we did another study where we looked at patients who have pure central apnea with fiber optic endoscopy of the upper airway. And lo and behold, the upper airway was obstructed in these individuals during pure central apnea. When we induced the central apnea, we noted the same phenomenon that the airway was progressively narrowed even in healthy individuals. So I think drive and upper airway patency do go hand in hand. That's why I like to think of breathing instability and upper airway patency as two interrelated phenomena and not as two separate parallel tracks. Oh, so that's really interesting. I think I remember reading something about um, sort of the accuracy of diagnosing central sleep apnea in somebody with a BMI, I think greater than maybe 45 or something. And it had something to do with the inability to move the chest and abdomen. Um, but then when they looked at the airway, it was obstructive, even though on, on the study, right, on the polysomnography, it looked 
central. So this is so this is interesting. I thought that was maybe an isolated population. So tell me a little bit more about the sort of the basics, like the basic mechanisms of what happens with central sleep apnea. So so central apnea is there are multiple pathways for central apnea. But the one that's most relevant to us is the dependence on CO2 levels. So as a, during wakefulness, if we hyperventilate and lower our CO2, we will not stop breathing because we have a cortical drive on top of all of this. Mm. But during non-REM sleep, and this is specifically to non-REM sleep, if we decrease the CO2 by a certain amount, we will go apneic. And I always tell when I, when I talk about central apnea, I can induce central apnea in every human huh. during non-REM sleep if I lower their CO2 enough. What varies is how much we need to lower the CO2. And, and that magnitude of hypocapnia is what's now called the CO2 reserve. Now, this is the original study on this was done by Scatrud and Dempsey in 1983. And, and basically exactly what they did, they used nasal mechanical ventilation to lower the CO2 and determined what's called the apneic threshold, which is reproducible. The same way we talk about a P-crit in mm. upper airway obstruction, we can talk about apneic threshold in central apnea. It's a parallel concept. So is that why central sleep apnea is more common in non-REM sleep? Yes. Well, non-REM sleep, see, this is the difference. And, and this is a, a way sometimes I can tell that events such as hypopneas are more likely to be central when they disappear in REM. Oh, sure. Yeah. Because REM sleep ventilatory motor output is actually higher. And, 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 and there is, the problem is that it's very difficult to do the same type of experimental paradigm in, non, in REM sleep because it's a finicky sleep. If I try, the way we, we induce central apnea is we hyperventilate someone for three minutes using nasal mechanical ventilation with a BPAP machine. And I cannot, if I do that in REM, people will not stay in REM. So I've been trying it for about 30 years and I can't get enough trials. Huh. Uh, and and <laughs> simply don't stay in REM. It's a finicky sleep state. Oh, that's really interesting. So, okay. So then why is central sleep apnea positional? Well, this is, this is a fascinating area and, and there are multiple ways of thinking about it. The closest, the most likely in my view, and I, I don't have the answer, okay. but the closest I think of is that when we are supine, our lung volumes are smaller, and this is especially in, in people who, in obese individuals. And when, when lung volumes are smaller, uh, what we call the plant gain is higher. So there are two ways of, to get into this idea. It's, if we think of it as a, as a controller system, if our plant gain is higher, that means for a given degree of, of minute ventilation, our CO2 will go down further. Mm. The closest way I, I can look at this idea of plant gain, think of a room you are trying to cool or to heat. A smaller room is more likely to respond to a change in the furnace activity. Oh, sure. Okay. And smaller lung volume is more likely to change the CO2. So that's one possibility is that it's, it's increased is higher plant gain. And this may also explain why giving CPAP in about 50% of central apnea patients will treat the condition. 
because you're increasing lung volume. Now, there are other mechanisms that are a little bit peculiar. One of them that has not been shown in humans, but it's at least in animals, if you deform the upper airway, you induce central apnea in animals. Huh. So applying negative pressure in the up to the upper airway. Whether this works in human or not, I don't know, but I haven't done the experiment. <laughs> but, but there are multiple pathways to lead to this. But I think the supine dependent is real. Uh, by the way, this was described for the first time by the same group that described or developed CPAP by Sullivan and Isa in 1986. Oh, wow. I didn't realize that. They actually, they're the ones who first identified that central apnea respond to CPAP and had a positional dependence. So what else then impacts central sleep apnea? I mean, is there, is it in older individuals, younger individuals, males, females? So this is the, this is the beauty of this is that the central, that propensity to central apnea varies across populations, that's one. And that variation seems to parallel the epidemiology of sleep apnea in general. Oh, so does it really? Example, if you take, and, and this was, we were when we were doing some of these studies on fiber optic imaging in the upper airway, we we're trying to induce central apnea. So we weren't really particularly paying attention to how easy or difficult it was. But we noted that in women, it was taking us a lot longer to induce the central apnea. And we were anxious. We just wanted to image the airway and move on. <laughs> and then we decided to test it systematically. And sure enough, we found that premenopausal women are more resistant to developing central apnea than, than age of uh, men of comparable age. Huh. And that was, there was about a 1.3 tour difference between men and women. And initially we said, well, that means it's probably everybody says progesterone. So we studied women in the luteal and follicular phase, but it wasn't different. Oh, wow. But then we said, okay, then it must be testosterone. So we took women and we gave them testosterone. And? and sure enough, their apneic threshold move exactly like men. Huh. And then we took men and gave them Lupron. And? And it moved exactly like women. Oh, for goodness sake. So, so this tells us that the apneic threshold is actually dynamic. It has plasticity, which means it responds to manipulation. So the idea that central apnea is not common in women, is not, it's not new. It's actually what's found in the large epidemiologic study in Hershey. Uh, huh. the, the Hershey study, which was, I think it was published in 99 or 2000. There are two of those. And, 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 and clearly in the, uh, in the abstract of it, it says paucity of central apnea in premenopausal women. Uh, so clearly there is, a, there is a difference between men and women. Now, as we age, our propensity to central apnea increases. And that's why we see central apnea in older adults. But in women, it's even more complicated because there is a menopause effect. Hmm. Menopausal women tend to have more central apnea than premenopausal women. So, so the story is a little bit variegated and complicated. It, it, it defies some linear analysis, say this or that. But clearly, there are demographic changes that, that affect us, with, with, at least with age and gender. Huh. Okay. So then what about post-arousal centrals? Do you think of them any differently? Well, um, I, so I make a distinction here between the 
scoring stage and the review stage. So <laughs> okay. I view my role as interpret the polysomnogram in light of all the available clinical literature, uh, clinical findings. So I pull their PFTs and imaging and anything else I find in the record to actually interpret it. So I capture all of these when they're being scored. But then I, when we decide what they mean, I make a distinction in my mind between two types. Mm. So there are types where we have an arousal. By the way, arousal after event is a normal physio. It's it's a it's an expected physiological response. Now, is it contributing to the subsequent central apnea? Right. If I see a period of hyperventilation, and again, you need you need some time of this hyperventilation. Think of we're decreasing the arterial CO2 that low CO2 has to travel all the way to the medulla. It's not going to get to the medulla in five breaths. It needs somewhere between two to three minutes to get there. Fair. So, so if I see that pattern, which is what you see in chain stokes respiration, then, then the arousal is contributing. Mm. There are times when I see, and I think this is the one what at least many of my colleagues and, and our trainees identify when they talk about a post-arousal, they see a huge breath and there is an apnea after that. Now, that is a sigh. And a sigh is a pause, is a, is a, is a large tidal volume. And it's maybe that inhibition after that is vagal. Mm. It's not necessarily uh, related to CO2. That is probably physiologic. Now, if that's all I see, I'm prepared to downgrade it and not consider it contributing to the overall picture. But again, it all depends on how many of these we're seeing. Huh. So then what about then the, the sleep onset central apnea? So you you taught me something really interesting that you talked about how when it was paper records and you would score events, all of the events were were all of the events were counted, right? Even during wakefulness. But now with our digital platforms, we don't score them during wakefulness. So are we missing something if we're only scoring them during sleep? I mean, what do you think about those sleep onset centrals? Well, well first of all, the, the whole concept of an epoch is a contrived concept. Sure. Yes. So, so it, 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 I can shift the epoch by half a second and I change it, whether that's you have 14 and a half seconds right. of sleep and 15 and a half seconds of wakefulness, <laughs> shifted by half second, and now that central event is captured. Right. So the epoch is sleep. The way I look at it, and I know that the system doesn't capture them, I, as I'm reading studies, I look at those. And if I see a lot of them, that tells me that the person is probably has a high propensity to develop central apnea. Mm. Now, I know our textbooks tend to call it, quote-unquote, physiologic. Mm -hmm. But if it's physiologic, why don't I see it in everyone or the majority of patients? Mm. So the fact that I don't see it in everyone tells me that I'm not sure it's physiologic. And these are the ones I capture them, and then I start looking. And quite often, I see they have other central events later. So to me, it's a marker. Now, how do we capture those? I I, I don't really have an answer, um, it, except that, I view it at least in a holistic fashion. And you're right, they can't be scored because the epoch is scored as, as wakefulness. Mm -hmm. So let's say you have a patient that has 
primary central sleep apnea. So how do you work them up? Do you have an algorithm? I mean, do you do a urine drug screen? Um, actually, this is one of, I, I wish we do drug screen on 100% <laughs> to have central apnea uh, of unexplained because we're otherwise struggling by labeling primary by definition is idiopathic, meaning you have, it's a fancy word of saying, way of saying, you have central apnea, but I have no idea why. Right. <laughs> and, and in that case, I'd like to know more. And, and personally, the same way we do urine toxicology screen before an MSLT, mm-hmm. I think for central apnea, we should do it. Um, but, but again, ha- that has to be done in a, in, in a standardized fashion. I don't really have an algorithm. And I've oscillated over the years, and pardon the pun of using oscillation. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll give you that one. That was pretty good. <laughs> uh, and and uh, so for a period of time, I got wanting to do more imaging. I've done brain MRI and I've done, but I found nothing. I mean, if there's no other symptoms, mm. probably I don't want to waste resources. I'm not finding anything. Mm. Uh, but if somebody has headache or has something to make me suspect a Kayari malformation, then then it's probably worth doing. I think in the vast majority of patients we we find we find nothing. And I've seen I've seen central apnea in young, healthy men whom we screening for research studies. We were huh. not doing anything and we find central apnea in them. And uh, what does that mean long term? I don't really know. Um so I I don't really have one. Um but most of the time Central apnea that I see happens in the context of, broadly speaking, sleep disorder breathing. They have other events. Mm. So I rarely have to make that pause and say, okay, I I have to decide whether to treat it or not. There's another reason to treat it usually. Mm. Okay, so that's really interesting. Tell me more about the young male with central sleep apnea and no symptoms that is just being tested for for what research yeah we, we we do sleep we do research studies that um for healthy adults huh. and for years most of our volunteers were college students or medical students and uh, occasionally we find someone who's perfectly healthy and they have central apnea and they are scared and they come and he came and talked to me and mm. said well you're not hypertensive you don't have any other medical condition you're asymptomatic um, this is something to just simply be aware of. Hmm. Um, and I don't know what the natural history of something like this is. Um, uh, well, that's what I was wondering. Do you see them then? Have you followed any of them out? Do they develop? I, I actually haven't. But I, what I what I told the, the my the, the, one of them, I told them, okay, well, I guess healthy living is your way forward. Huh. Um, maybe if you don't gain weight and develop obstructive apnea in the process, um, and just healthy living. That's all I can say. And just be aware of it. And again, since since this was not triggered by a health concern, I don't know what it means. That's fair. That's true. That's true. Because how how do you know what you know, quote unquote, normal is across a population? Yep. Ah. So then, okay. So they don't have narcotics. They don't have heart failure. They don't have any sort of symptoms that make you think of a Chiari malformation. Then what? Do you just sort of? I just left them alone. I mean, there were there wasn't there wasn't a huge number, but but this particular individual was was very concerned. But 
it it wasn't it wasn't a large number to make him concerned because otherwise I probably would have pursued a a more a, a more systematic evaluation. That's fair, huh? So let's take a short break, and when we come back, we'll talk more about the diagnosis and treatment of central sleep apnea. You're listening to Talking Sleep from the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. Learn more about building a successful career in sleep research through the AASM Foundation's Young Investigators Research Forum. This training program provides opportunities for early career investigators to understand how to secure sleep research funding. Learn more and apply today at foundation.aasm.org YIRF. Welcome back to Talking Sleep. Our guest today is Dr. Safwan Bader, and we're talking about central sleep apnea. So then if we were to look at outcomes or clinical relevance or maybe maybe clinical importance, is central sleep apnea as worrisome as obstructive sleep apnea? Well, th- this all depends on the, the definition. To me, I think central apnea, because of the way we classify it, is has been viewed as kind of a minor side mm-hmm. note. I I do believe that it's very significant and and it it merits investigation, and we shouldn't stop breathing at night for whatever reason. Um, and we need to know in every particular individual, and I think we need to be approach it uh, methodically and systematically. I do believe in a large number of patients, we will find coexisting obstructive sleep apnea. So I think they go hand in hand. Huh. And you described it as the Cinderella. What do you mean by that? Well, because it's kind of ignored. It's like, it's like, it's, it's like the stepsister. (laughs) All the attention goes to the loud obstructive apnea and the quiet little sister just doesn't get any attention. And uh, and I and I think we need to pay more attention to it. I, I I think it's a driver of sleep disorder breathing, not not a not a uh, not a minor footnote. Mm, so not just a marker, but it's physiologically important. I think it's physiologically very important, and and it and it may tell us a lot about ventilatory control and other aspects in a given individual. So you kind of talked earlier about why CPAP works in central sleep apnea, and you suggested that maybe it was by increasing lung volumes. Is that the only reason? Um, there are probably multiple reasons. Increasing lung volume would be one of them. The other one is CPAP opens the upper airway. Mm. And we mentioned something about upper airway narrowing and obstruction. And, and by opening the upper airway, it may dampen the aftershoot. Uh, the overshoot that happens after an event. The other thing, which is equally important, I don't know if it's equally important, but at least it's important, <laughs> is um, is the fact when you increase lung volume, especially in someone uh, whose oxygenation dropping a little bit, you increase oxygenation. When you increase oxygenation, you're turning off the carotid body. And, and the carotid body, the peripheral chemoresponsiveness is maybe one of the most destabilizing factors in respiration huh. because the carotid body responds quickly from people who talk about system one and system two. This is a system one. It's a survival thing. My oxygen is dropping within 10 seconds. I'm going to, I have to breathe. Mm. So, so by doing so, it lowers the CO2 very quickly. So it's destabilizing. So I think I think CPAP increases lung volume, 
opens the upper airway, increase oxygenation, and hence dampens the carotid body response. Uh, so decreases, decreases all of these factors. So I think it works on more than one pathway. So what are the other treatment options that we should consider for our patients with primary central sleep apnea? Well, we have, we have a variety. Uh, the other treatment that have been tried, and, and they, every, most of these studies are fairly limited, and most of the studies in central apnea, just, just to frame them, were in patients who have central apnea and heart failure. This is where the bulk of the studies mm. were. So CPAP is the very first one that was described. Uh, people tried BPAP and it and it works, but there's one careful word of caution with BPAP is that BPAP in and of itself may cause central apnea. Yes. <laughs> so I actually, all my experiments that we do in our lab to induce central apnea uses BPAP. That's how we do it. Oh, wow. Okay. And 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 the same the same idea because that pressure support yes. level is what lowers your CO2. So BPAP will probably have to be done in the context with with a, with a backup rate. The third modality, which is adaptive servoventilation, which originally was described for or developed for heart failure, mm. is another mode that we use. Again, and now we know that we shouldn't be using it in patients who have central sleep apnea heart failure with reduced ejection fraction below 45%. Mm. So now, now we know from, from the literature, but it can be in, in primary central apnea or somebody who had normal ejection fraction, uh, it, it can be used. Uh, we've used, one of the things I'm becoming more and more interested in is combination therapies. Mm. Um, and we've done this uh, in, in patients where we've used oxygen with CPAP, now, the problem with oxygen is that if there is no hypoxia, you may not be able to, to get it covered because you need a certain yes. level of hypoxemia so you, you can actually use it. Yes. Hypoxia is very appealing because it works on multiple pathways. One of them is it dampens the carotid chemoreflex sensitivity. That's one. But the other one, which is fascinating literature, is that if you give, if you give oxygen, you increase brain CO2 slightly. It's mm. a effect. You displace that CO2. So, so it has multiple ways of responding. I think it's a very nice physiologic response. And I know there's been a lot of interest in, in oxygen for central apnea, but we've used it uh, in wh whenever, whenever payer allows us <laughs> in combination with, with CPAP. And the last one that I've actually been using is acetazolamide. I wondered about that. How do you use that? How does it work for you? Well, I use it, I use a, a, a low dose, 250 milligram only, mm. and I use it with CPAP. Oh, uh, you do? Yeah, so I do not. Again, the vast majority of patients with central apnea have coexisting obstructive disease. That, that's that just reality in epidemiologic studies. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I give them CPAP and then add acetazolamide to it. Again, I do it on a case-by-case -case basis and, uh, and uh, evaluate them carefully, monitor their bicarb. Um, I've, I've had a reasonable success rate and I'm actually trying, um, we're, we're studying it now experimentally in a, in a clinical trial, mm. looking at the combination of acetazolamide plus CPAP uh, in, in patients with central apnea. Oh, that's interesting. 
What about the implanted device? Implanted device is, Mm -hmm. again, it's also, all of these things will probably end up, every one of those may end up being a, a, a sub-segment of the, mm. of the population. I think, I think it can be tried. But these are the kind of things that have to be in a specialized center where the expertise is there. Right. Uh, this, is, this, is, this is not everywhere. Um, and, again, we, and again, all of these are going to be until we have long-term outcome data. One, one important note in most of the things that we have, what we have are intermediate outcome. And, and I'm, I'm, so my, my, my opinion is that these things can be tried and mm. we, we should consider them on a, who is the appropriate patient and understanding that at the present time, we are still at the stage of collecting long-term outcome data. Okay, so let's talk about treatment emergent central apnea. So tell me about the physiology, like what is happening here? Well, treatment emergent sleep apnea, uh, somebody once told me that if you want new ideas, look at old literature. (laughs) And the treatment emergent sleep apnea was actually described in the 70s by Weizmann. Oh, no way. I didn't know that. Yeah. And then, and then Onyal and Lopata published it as well. So there was, and actually there is another, somebody told me there's even an older Italian study. Oh, so for goodness sake. It goes back into the 70s that people describe, because remember, the only treatment for sleep apnea in the Jurassic era of medicine <laughs> was tracheostomy. Mm-hmm. So, so people would find that you tracheostomize patients. And they, voila, they still have central apnea. They had ah. obstructive apnea last week. This week, it's central apnea, flavor of the week. Huh. And after you study them later, and it goes away. So, so central sleep apnea, why does it persist? And why does it develop? So there are, again, there are multiple potential pathways. The question is, are we inducing, is the disease inducing it? Are we inducing it mm. or has it always been there and we're not seeing it? So huh. these are kind of three different pathways. Are we inducing it? Rapid decrease, increase in CPAP, a leak where the CO2 is being lowered. The, the, the brain is used to a certain level of CO2 and we're lowering it very rapidly. Right. That's when we're inducing it. Okay. Is, is the disease inducing it? Mm. And one thing we know that with sleep apnea, you have chronic intermittent hypoxia. And, and this phenomenon sensitizes the carotid body and increases your propensity to develop central apnea. Uh, in, in one of our studies, we took patients with pure obstructive apnea, and we saw that their propensity to central apnea, their CO2 reserve, was very narrow. We treated them with CPAP, and it normalized. So just having exposure to intermittent hypoxia will make you more susceptible to central apnea. So this is the second one that the disease is causing it. And the third possibility is that it was always there in a subtle way that we missed it. Huh. And I'm going to tell you how. One example, for example, you look at the study and you find that there was central apnea at sleep onset. And ah. then as it happened, now you're not seeing it. Two, most, 
clinical laboratories do not have the ability to distinguish central from obstructive, not because they lack the ability, it's time consuming. So it's not being done. So if you look at many of the older studies, the hypopneas are always lumped under the rubric of obstructive events. Mm -hmm. While these hypopneas may be central for all we know. And then many times I find that there are a small number of central apneas and a whole bunch of hypopneas. So, so again, we're inducing it, the disease caused it, or, or it's actually always been there. So strictly speaking, if it's treatment emergent, it should not have been there to begin with. But, but it's hard to make that distinction. But yeah, there are multiple pathways. Mm. But at the end of the day, it's there. Mm-hmm. And we need to we need to be cautious in, in not over-treating it. So then how do you treat it? So my approach is, and this is one area when data are few, experts are many. <laughs> uh, our approach has been to be a cautious one. So I look at the level of uh, CPAP that eliminates the obstructive apnea mm. and treat them. Because the idea here is, Let's look at the fit, make sure the fit is appropriate, make sure there is no leak, and treat them with, with CPAP. And what does this do? The most important thing this will do is that it will eliminate, if the disease is of obstructive apnea is causing it, we eliminate that. And then we monitor them frequently, probably for several weeks. Mm. We used to bring them back for another sleep study, another polysomnogram, but many patients don't like to have to come back for this. So we actually rely on telemonitoring, on, on our remote monitoring, because mm. it's, it's, I think it's pretty good. And, and if after three months or so, this thing went away, we're done, which is probably the natural history in a good number of patients. Now, there are a number of people who would continue to have some. Mm. And this is where we could debate and there could be different approaches. Our approach has been on not over-treating. Not, not, and, and how am I defining this? Probably an AHI of about 15 or so. Oh, wow. Okay. okay? And, and I think this is consistent with, 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 with other guidelines. But the question is that around 15, they're not symptomatic. Leave them alone. Mm. If it's more than 15 and it's persists, and they're symptomatic, uh, then then I think then we need we bring them back and we do either ASV or BPAP ST. So this is kind of our approach. Uh, but I'd like to give them time to get them on CPAP, get them to accept the CPAP, use the CPAP, make sure it's still there despite all of these things, make sure there's nothing else, heart failure, hmm. opioid, whatever, and then reassess them and have a bit of a high threshold. Now, that's that's probably the a, a bit of a conservative approach. There may be some others who like to be more aggressive mm. and long-term. I have no idea which one will be more correct, but that's our view. Hmm. And so symptomatic, you mean persistent sleepiness? Persistent sleepiness, disturbed sleep. Yes. Mm. So something to tell me that these people aren't getting the quality sleep that they, that they deserve and need. Yes. Mm, that's interesting. 
So one of the conversations I've had with my colleagues um, around SurveyChef, right? So we learned from SurveyChef that we don't use ASV to treat primary central sleep apnea in people with heart failure and reduced ejection fraction, as you mentioned earlier. But what about then treatment emergent central apneas? I mean, should we be applying this logic to a, this different entity? You know, should we be getting echoes in our patient? My approach is that if they have ejection fraction 45% or below, I don't distinguish TEXA from central apnea. Oh, you don't? To me, to me, it's central apnea. So to me, it's the device that I would not be using in this population. If it's, if they're Ejection fraction above 45%, yes. If ejection fraction below 45%, no, I do not use it. Uh, I don't view TEXA as different than central apnea. It, huh. it, it's, a, it's simply manifested because now the air, we open the airway. That's really interesting. So you just draw a hard line. <laughs> if, if it's persistent, that means you've had it. It's no longer treatment emergent if it's continued. Mm. If it's related hmm. to the treatment or the condition and you treat them, eventually it will go away. But three months later, it's still there. That means you have you have an increased propensity to central apnea. Ah, oh, so three and months is have, your cutoff. Three months is sort of your threshold. Yeah, yeah, exactly. If it persists, that means that means you've had it before. Huh, that's actually that's a really interesting way of looking at it. And I wonder if you then go back to the PSG and you look at sleep onset, right? And do you see that sort of instability in their in their respiratory pattern? That would be really interesting to look at. In many instances I have, but I have to also be be cognizant of the fact that the eyes will see what the mind wants to see. So <laughs> yes, we all have selectivity in what we remember. Okay, that's fair. That's funny. So if you have one message about central sleep apnea that you want to share with our sleep medicine colleagues, what would it be? The message is that we need to think of ventilatory drive of central apnea as a headline, not a footnote. Mm. It is really a driver in, in the whole condition under the rubric of sleep disorder breathing. And that morphologic distinction that we draw international borders or firewalls between central apnea and obstructive apnea, I think it's arbitrary and artificial and may not be benefiting our patients. So if we think of it as an unstable system with an unfavorable upper airway, it will manifest as obstructive apnea. An unstable system with a favorable upper airway, it will manifest as central apnea. Huh. So it's one system that, that is showing you instability. Well, thank you so much to, for talking with us today. So while central sleep apnea isn't as common as obstructive sleep apnea, it is really an important conversation for us to have so that we can better understand the signs and symptoms and understand treatment options. Well, thank you. Thanks for listening to Talking Sleep, brought to you by the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. For more podcast episodes, please visit our website at aasm.org. You can also subscribe through your favorite podcast service. And if you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to leave a rating or review. For more feedback or suggestions, email us at podcast at aasm.org. I hope you'll join us again for more Talking Sleep. Until next time, this is Seema Kosla, encouraging you to sleep well so you can live well. <laughs>